Hey, if you brought your Bible this morning, turn it to the book of Acts, which is just to the right of the Gospels in your New Testament. Forty days of purpose. Several years ago, Pastor Rick Warren with Saddleback Church wrote The Purpose Driven Church, and then churches like ours had 40 days of purpose in which we went through that book. But that's not the 40 days I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the 40 days from the resurrection of Jesus Christ until his ascension, because those were 40 days filled with purpose, intentional uh, in terms of instructing his disciples and preparing them for the invasion that we'll talk about in a few minutes here. But first, let's begin with this first chapter of Acts, verse 1, and here's how it opens. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now wait a minute. What's the first account? Well, some of you know it's the Gospel of Luke. That was written by Luke and so is the book of Acts and this was a sequel. He's continuing the story. And... Uh, going on from here. And then he says in verse 3, to these, the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Who's Theophilus? Well, it's a man he's writing to. It could be his real name or a pseudoname. It meant friend of God or lover of God. And as I mentioned, it says here that he had given orders to his disciples and uh, those were marching orders for the coming invasion. Now, when we think of an invasion, usually it has a negative connotation. Like, for instance, the invasion of Kuwait, which happened under Saddam Hussein and he came to oppress the peoples of that tiny nation. Or, or the invasion of Crimea, by Vladimir Putin last year. And both Iraq and Russia had bloody intent when they moved into those nations. Those were invasions of conquest. But there are invasions of liberation. There are invasions which are really positive in nature. I think of 1983, the invasion of Grenada, when, when the American troops came into that tiny Caribbean island because it had been taken over by communist Cuba and they liberated them from those forces. Or the 1991 U.S.-led coalition that did go into Kuwait uh, and with uh, much force liberated the peoples there as well. Probably the greatest invasion militarily in human history that has taken place to liberate people took place in the mid-1940s. Now, I like history. Some of you know very well what I'm talking about. Some of you may not. And it's kind of important, I think, to know what happened in Europe in the 1940s. Because after World War I, Germany was reduced in size after it had uh, really uh, initiated that war. And they were discontents. Adolf Hitler came to power in 1933. And he gave them a vision for a new Germany, the old Germany, resurrected and, and empowered. And so he began to 
train youth up and give that kind of a message to his nation. And I'll show you a couple maps that might surprise you here. This is Europe in 1933, and you can see that actually Germany was a good-sized nation in there, but it wasn't big enough for Hitler. And so he took his Nazi forces and began aggressively to go after the nations around them, into the Rhineland, into Sudetenland, claiming uh, parts of Germany they believed belonged to them, and then pushing east as well. This continued... And Western nations just kind of backed down until finally, uh, well, at the height of Nazi aggression during World War II that eventuated, this is what Germany looked like. That's what the Nazi realm was composed of. Isn't that amazing? I mean, all the way from France, clear on east into Russia and Norway, and, uh, well, Italy was an ally, but that whole realm was German. In fact, if there hadn't been an invasion for liberation, we'd probably be speaking German today. But a number of nations, after the U.S. entered the war, the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, aligned with Great Britain, with uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and, and well, there were 13 nations in total, and they amassed in England and launched an invasion from here down into France. Some people thought they would come from North Africa, but that was a feint. Actually came from the south of England, and this is the map of that invasion. They came in ships across the canal and uh, landed on four, excuse me, five beaches there on the coast of Normandy in France. Those were heavily fortified by the Germans, and it was a huge undertaking to get ashore. Uh, and establish a beachhead. Took them a couple days to do so. There were 10,000 casualties on the Allied side alone uh, during that invasion. Finally, they were able to establish the beachhead, move inland, and then in coming months, move east to Berlin, where they joined the forces of Russia, and Germany was defeated. Huge undertaking to liberate the peoples of Europe. And we celebrate that invasion every June, by the way, uh, on D-Day, June 6th, that's when that occurred. But as monumental as the invasion of Normandy was, it's dwarfed by the invasion that Jesus envisioned for his disciples to undertake. And that would be the invasion of planet Earth. It would be global in scope. It would include every nation and every people group that could be liberated from the enemy, the devil himself. Because those that don't know the Lord, whether they realize it or not, are under the tyranny of sin and death and hell, the devil's own. And so Jesus wanted people liberated, and so he was equipping his disciples during those 40 days. And that mandate still continues for his disciples down through the ages, including every one of us. And so the disciples needed to know that, and so during those 40 days, he's preparing them with those 40 days' purpose. Well, Jesus' marching order to his disciples would fulfill his mission. There's an outline in your bulletin. Jesus' marching orders to his disciples would fulfill his mission. But before the disciples would take seriously that mission, 
they needed to understand some things. They needed to know that he had sent them. And by the way, this same Luke that wrote the book of Acts, as I said, mentioned, or mentioned he wrote the Gospel of Luke as well, he records those marching orders because he tells on resurrection day, Jesus appeared in the upper room to his disciples and he spoke to them about this mission. He had told them that he had to fulfill the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then it says, then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in, in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses, he said, of these things. Those are marching orders. Go to all those nations. Proclaim forgiveness of sins. Matthew records it this way in another expression. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Mark has it, and he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And John, in his gospel, So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Do you think that those marching orders were clear? How could they miss it? I mean, from different angles and in different ways, Jesus told them, the world is your objective. Go. Proclaim forgiveness. Make disciples by baptizing and teaching. But here's the question. Would they be motivated to go with this message? And once they got there, would they understand and be able to communicate or convey that message to the peoples? And by the way, that's a good question for us to ask ourselves this morning. Am I motivated to go across the street or across the office or across my campus to, or to you know, share with my family about this good news? And do I have the right message? That's what I believe, among other things, Jesus addressed in these 40 days. And I want to look at verse 3 and a couple of phrases in this verse that I think can answer the question for us as it did for them. And here's the first. To accomplish the mission, Jesus knew his disciples needed to be convinced of the miracle. And I'm talking about the miracle of the resurrection. They needed to believe that this one who had been crucified and buried really was alive because that would change everything. If he conquered death, he could offer life to anyone who would believe. Well, look at verse 3 again. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Do you know that in the New Testament there are 11 recorded appearances of Jesus to his disciples after he rose? From Mary Magdalene outside of the tomb 
all the way through the others, and I won't take time to mention them this morning, to the ascension, 11 times he appeared to his disciples and spoke to them and taught them. And Paul the Apostle said at one time there were even 500 in the group that he spoke to. What was the point? What was the purpose? To convince them, to prove that he had indeed risen from the dead so they'd be motivated to go forth with this message. We need to be convinced today, folks, that he not only died for our sins, but he rose again to be motivated to go. Well, there's another essential element, and here it is. It's in that same verse. To be successful, Jesus knew his disciples needed to comprehend the message. Verse 3, once again. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of days, and here it is, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. They needed to understand a lot of things about the kingdom of God, which he was instructing them in. One of the things that they needed to understand is the nature of the kingdom. That it wasn't a political kingdom, it wasn't a palace and a throne and ruling over other nations so the glory of Israel would be restored at that time. No, this would be more of an invisible realm. This would be one where God would be allowed and invited to rule in human hearts and in homes and families and in communities and even in nations that would submit themselves to him. This would be the nature of the kingdom and he needed for them to understand that. What did he communicate during those 40 days specifically? Well, we're not told. But I'm guessing he may have reminded them of the uh, parables from Matthew's gospel. Where in, remember chapter 13? Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he would tell all these different parables. It's like a sower who went out to scatter seed. And there were different kinds of soils and receptivities. And that's the way people are going to respond to this message of the kingdom. He may have reminded them also of the kinds of people that received that message, that welcomed it, that he went to. I mean, it was the sick. It, were those, it was those who recognized their need of a savior. It was the outcasts, the marginalized, the lepers, the poor. Those were the ones that received this message of the kingdom and how he'd loved them and even... The religious had rejected him. I believe that the kingdom and the words concerning the kingdom aren't just words, but they're actions. Oftentimes, the church today, we know the words of the gospel, and we know how to share the Roman road or the four spiritual laws, and those are important. But what we need to also understand is how to live out the gospel of the kingdom in the midst of a culture that often doesn't know the Lord or rejects Christ. Recently on a Focus on the Family broadcast, I heard Caleb Kaltenbach speak of his life story and uh, I was impressed by it. Hadn't heard anything quite like that. And uh, later I read his book and it's entitled Messy Grace. And I think that Caleb has a unique perspective from which to share with us, the church, how to live out this gospel 
this message of the kingdom among people who don't know it or believe it. And so I wanted to share a little bit with you about his life. He grew up in Missouri. Both his parents were college professors. And he was a young child when his mother moved away and uh, moved in with Vera, her friend. And then Caleb was brought into that family, and he was primarily raised by those two women. And they were very active in the Kansas City uh, gay and lesbian community. Later, his father uh, came out as gay. And so that's the environment in which Caleb was raised. And, and they would go to all these meetings, and they would go to gay pride parades. And that was just a way of life for this young boy growing up. He said in some of those parades that they would go to, they'd be marching along and uh, there'd be people holding signs and yelling at them and all kinds of things. And he'd ask his mother, who are these people? And she said, well, well, those are the Christians. They hate us. And so that was his understanding about who Christians were. Well, he became a teenager and someone invited him to a Bible study. He'd never read the Bible, but he thought, I'm going to get back at these Christians, and I'm going to read it, and I'm going to, I'm going to prove them wrong. And so he started going to that Bible study, and you know where this is going. Over a period of months, he came to meet Jesus in that study, and he opened his heart to the Lord, and he came out as a Christian to his parents. And that was traumatic. That was a difficult time for everybody, but uh, he had come to know the Lord through his relationship with Christ. He later went on to become a pastor because he felt called to preach, and he's a pastor today, in fact. And I believe that he has a unique perspective on, well, a lot of things because he's been on both sides of the equation. But there's a verse in particular in John 1.17 that I think he can bring light to you're familiar with this verse. John's talking about Jesus in that opening chapter, and then he says this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law seemed really harsh, and it was. Here's the standard, meet it or perish. But Jesus came offering grace and truth. Well, that's what Caleb is set, attempting to set forth by his life and ministry and in this book that I mentioned, Messy Grace. And here's one thing he says in there. When you deal with people, you'll always get messy. When you choose to love people who think and act differently than you, the situation could get extremely messy. And yet, these are the very people to whom Jesus has sent us in his name. If we are going to understand Messy Grace then we have to understand how to love people no matter who they are. We have to be willing to enter into those messy relationships. And we're messy too, right? Somehow, despite the messiness we encounter, we have to figure out how to be bearers of grace and truth because it always results in love. Now, on the surface, grace and truth seem antithetical, like you can't put them together. But Jesus did. He brought grace and truth to people. Caleb mentions that if we're going to be honest with ourselves as conservative Christians, we don't have the best 
track record of loving people that are different than us. If they have a different political ideology, if they have a different theology, if they have different lifestyle preferences, if they have beliefs and behaviors that differ from ours, sometimes we haven't been all that good at loving them. Instead of extending grace, we've all too often wounded them in general. He makes the point that when we encounter people, whether they're in our families or in our workplace, on our campus, that are different from us in their beliefs or their behaviors, we have some choices to make. We can kick them out of our lives, just have nothing to do with them. Or secondly, we can ignore the differences, pretend they don't exist. Or third, we can change our beliefs to, you know, what, whatever they believe. Or fourth, we can keep on loving them while holding firmly to our own beliefs. He said, that's always worked out best for me. Well, I think that's exactly what Jesus did. And think about it. Think of the people that Jesus related to. I mean, whether it is, or were the tax collectors, Matthew and Zacchaeus. I mean, they were hated by the people, but Jesus loved them and extended grace to them and truth. What about Nicodemus, the religious rabbi that came to him by night? I mean, he extended grace and truth to him as well. The Roman centurions. I mean, they were the oppressors in the land of Israel at that time, and boy, they hated the Romans, but Jesus loved these guys, and he extended grace and truth to them as well. Even the adulterous woman that was brought to him, thrown down before him, he refused to condemn her. He extended grace to her. And then truth, when he said, go your way and sin no more. How about even the disciples? I mean, they needed lots of grace. They were always messing up. But he kept loving them and kept bringing them to the truth. And that's what Christ is calling us as the church to do as we continue this invasion into planet Earth and the communities around us. Here's a quote from Caleb from his book. I don't know if you're ready for this, but here it is. Knowing and embracing biblical truth about same-sex issues should make us more loving toward the LGBT community than ever. Far from the image that many in the LGBT community have of conservative Christians hating them, we should be more gracious to the community all the more. Because we know that not only are they sinners, like us, but also God loves them. We should become, where we should be more loving toward the gay community than we were before we became followers of Christ. We should be more loving toward people who are not followers of Jesus at all. Isn't that the truth? Think about it. Our prejudices... Uh, our feelings toward others before we came to Christ, and now we know, wow, we've received God's grace that brought us to truth, and can we not, and should we not, extend that to others? In a chapter entitled, The Messy Church, Caleb talks about uh, a chapter in his own life. You see, I say that he felt called to preach, so he went to Ozark Christian College. And that's a college uh, in our own movement, by the way. And 
during one of the first semesters, they gave an opportunity for these guys to go preach in area rural churches. And boy, he said, I signed up right away. And uh, he said, it was great for a time because I could go to a church for a weekend or maybe two weekends, and I only had to have one or two sermons. But then they assigned me to a church about 60 miles north of Joplin, and I went there for 18 months, he said, and uh, that was tough as a full-time student. He said, in fact, one weekend I didn't have a sermon ready, and I'm ashamed to admit it, but I just took along a commentary on the Gospel of John and laid it on the pulpit and uh, just read it to him. And he said, and by the way, there were, there were 25 people in that little country church, but there were only 50 in the town, so we had half the population. But he said, I laid that commentary on the pulpit, and I just read them, starting in the beginning. And after 30 minutes, they thanked me for it. They, they appreciated the insights into the textual issues in John's gospel that I gave them. He said, but that wasn't our only problem. We didn't have good music in that church. He said, I know that uh, we have the understanding that God just loves it when his people praise him in song. But he said, I think in the case of that church, God would have made an exception. He said, the people in that church had no idea how to hit a note. And he said, and the lady that played the piano, she had no idea what that instrument was about. She would just start banging away on it. it had nothing to do with the song we were singing, but people didn't seem to notice or care, and they just sang loudly and badly anyway. And so that was a challenge. But he said, I'd been trying to get my mother to come to church for a long time. And I'm preaching there every weekend. And so finally she said, okay, I'll, I'll come. I was so excited. And he said, we drove up to the church. We walked up those creaky old steps and into the church. And he said, people just looked at us. He said, I'd mentioned my mother in many of those sermons. Uh, they knew about my mother and Vera, and they knew about my dad, and they just knew that was a part of my background. They just looked at us, but he said one couple actually came over and greeted us and then turned and went the other side of the room. So that was about that. But he said then the singing began, and he said my mother always had a great sense of humor. And so she heard that singing, and she got tickled, and she started laughing. And uh, he said, I think she laughed through that whole song service, but he said, I don't think anybody noticed because the singing was so loud and bad. But on the way home, he said, I asked her, so, Mom, what would you think? She said, you know, I really enjoyed it. I haven't laughed so hard in a long time. <laughs> but he, she told him not to expect her to go back to church anytime soon. Well, he said, I drove up there the next weekend. I walked into the church, and he said, I knew I was in trouble when two of the elders said they wanted to talk to me in the back room. So we went into the back room, and they sat down at a table, and they said, if you want to continue to preach in this church, don't ever bring anyone like that with you again. He said, I said, excuse me? And they repeated themselves. And then he said, well, then you have my resignation. And they said, oh, no, you can continue preaching. You just don't bring somebody like that. And we need you to preach today. And he said, I'll preach today, and that'll be it. And he said, I did, and I probably shouldn't have, but I let him have it. And he said, I decided then that if I ever pastor a, another church, I want to have a church where there are people who are struggling, and they admit it. People that are struggling with alcohol or financial situations or marriage issues or sexual identity. I want to have people come that are broken and needy and recognize their need for a Savior. 
Then he mentions that parable that most of you are familiar with that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector and how these two men went up to the temple to pray one day and the Pharisee gets up there and he looks over at that tax collector and then he lifts his eyes to heaven and he prays and says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy and people like that and then touted his own righteousness. And then Jesus said the tax collector couldn't even look up but he looked down and beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the man that went away forgiven that day. And Caleb makes the point. He said, you know, we may not think we have a lot in common with the Pharisee, but we actually have quite a bit in common with that Pharisee when you think about it. And here's a list of some of the things that we and Pharisees of the first century would have had in common. We both believe the Hebrew Scriptures, that's our Old Testament, are divinely inspired. We both believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in Christ's resurrection, but they believed in a general resurrection at the end of the age and in a Messiah. We both believe in the importance of living a life pleasing to God, uh, of the need to practice spiritual discipline such as prayer and fasting. We both believe in angels, demons, heaven, and more. And we both believe in studying God's Word and knowing it well. And we both believe in teaching other people about God. Now, when you think about it, churches today would be pretty happy to have folks like that in their church. Those are good church people and uh, welcome in any church. And when you think about the tax collector, you think, we shouldn't have much in common with that guy. But a closer uh, look reveals something else. Let's take a look at what we have in common with this tax collector. He loves God. He acknowledges that he fails God, calls himself a sinner. He owns his junk. His sin is causing him emotional and physical pain. He admits to doing things God says not to. He struggles with sadness over his sin. He understands his life depends on God's mercy. He's so humble he doesn't make a show of his prayer and he doesn't feel worthy on his own to approach God. Well, when we think about it, we realize the tax collector is someone that we probably identified with when we first came to Christ because we were so aware of our sinful lifestyle. But, but as we continue to go to church through the years, and those gross sins were no longer a part of our lives, we moved on to other kinds of sins, uh, then we more identified with the Pharisee. But what we need to do is get in touch with who we really are and what he's delivered us from and continues to deliver us from and our desperate need for God's grace and truth in our lives. And if we understand about that about ourselves, we'll understand that about those around us who are different than us, that they need grace and truth as well. So Caleb, he, he, he went on to pastor a church in Texas, and now he's pastoring one in Simi Valley, California. But when he was in Texas, each of his parents came to his church and came to know Christ and got saved. And they led different lives as a result. But if he had simply condemned them or kicked them out of his life, that never would have happened. 
He extended grace and he continued to stand on the truths of God's word about sin and, and God's standard. And they came to Christ and then truth changes people along the way. And I, I believe that that's what we need to understand. And I think that's how the gospel has advanced. When people have been convinced of the miracle of the resurrection and have understood the message that it's not just the words of the gospel, but it's the lives lived out, expressing to people around us who are different from us, God's love, God's grace, and the truth of the gospel and how God calls us to live. But it's the love of Christ that reaches us and will reach those around us. Have we changed our opinion about uh, sexuality or same-sex marriage or traditional marriage? Not at all. What we want to do is stand on the side of truth and grace. Because when you balance those two together, you have the love of Christ that goes forth from us as it came from Jesus. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you for not only telling us this, but for showing it to us through your life and the way that you loved. And Lord, I believe that there are some of us here this morning that would confess that maybe we've come down too much on the side of truth. And we've been all about truth, but not really willing to extend grace to those who are different. Forgive us for that. Lord, there may be some of us this morning that have extended too much grace without truth and just thought we can embrace whatever people believe or however they behave without ever feeling the desire to share what you say about truth. Neither one is helpful, and we want to be a balance of both. In fact, we want to be filled with your Spirit so we can live out this gospel of grace and truth. Help us to do so, Lord. Uh, forgive us wherein we've fallen short. It's not easy to do, but help us to live this out. We pray for your kingdom and for your glory. In your name, amen.